Hello, and welcome to the Carrier Conversations podcast. I'm Andy Barr, founder of Barr Transportation, and we are so glad you decided to tune in today. At Barr Transportation, we are the premier transportation brokerage that focuses on over-the-road or LTL food and beverage transportation, operating in Canada and U.S. Now, whether you are a company driver, owner-operator, or an owner of a small, medium, or mega-sized carrier, this podcast is for you. We'll cover how to run a profitable carrier, how to recruit the best drivers and keep them, and so, so much more. Lastly, at the end of each episode, make sure to stick around because we'll share with you how you can apply to be on the podcast yourself. Interviews are about 15 minutes long, and I'll leave you with my favorite quote, preparation plus opportunity equals success. That's all for now. Keep those wheels turning, and I'll see you on the inside. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Carrier Conversations podcast. Today, we have a pretty interesting uh, and and, uh, valuable conversation. We have Michael Bloss with Black Belt TC. They are a mergers and acquisition specialist um, consultant. And Michael, who's the founder of Black Belt TC, is with us. So, Michael, welcome. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this is a very exciting topic because we work our entire lives or a very long time uh, starting a company, growing a company. And, you know, at the end of it, I don't know what the statistic is, but a very large percentage do not sell their companies. Right. It's they 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 fizzle out. They just you know, they don't take the time to properly sell. So for those that actually are interested in, you know, selling their companies and have grown it to a, a reputable size that is worth to sell, this is going to be an extremely valuable conversation, whether you're on the asset side or pure brokerage side. So I'm looking forward to it. And uh, just as we kind of, before we dive in, Michael, if you wouldn't mind, just give a little overview of what your background was. It looks like Black Belt TC was started in 2017. So a little bit of background of what you did before Black Belt, and then we'll get into the conversation. Yes. Well, where there are a lot of things that kind of differentiates Black Belt TC, and, and one of them is, is the direct experience in, in the industry. Most companies of our type are kind of private equity finance type guys. I'm not a finance guy. I've, I've been in the transportation industry my entire career. In fact, while I was going to school, uh, going to college while on break, I was uh, breaking freight on the roadway distribution center dock outside of, in uh, Chicago Heights, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and uh, got on with yellow freight systems right after, after college. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing, but worked my way up through the company up to VP level and then left uh, having the opportunity to um, run a company. Um, the last 25 years of, of my uh, background is in C-level positions. Um, and all 25 years heavily involved in acquisitions, whether it was uh, acquiring businesses um, and integrating them into companies that I was running myself. Uh, I've run asset-based trucking, asset light fleet management, and non-asset brokerage operations, did acquisitions, uh, integrated them into all three different types of businesses. And the other form of uh, acquisition experience I, I have within the 25 years is being the senior VP of acquisitions for Echo Global Logistics, 
in Chicago, um, recruited by Doug Wagner, who I knew from my yellow freight days and brought me in when he was looking to uh, transition from the uh, introductory stage of the business to um, they're about four months away from going public and was wanting to bring in uh, transportation experience uh, outside of his uh, startup team people to get that going. So um, I did a great deal, a great many of uh, Echo's acquisitions up to their um, their big uh, command uh, acquisition in, in the market. Wow. Well, 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 Michael, you, you certainly have the experience on both sides and for very reputable companies. So uh, this is you are the the person to talk to. So I can't wait to dive in here. Uh, and you're also an actual an actual black belt. Is that correct? I am a uh, I hold advanced level uh, martial arts uh, black belts in three different international organizations. But black belt uh, TC, actually, the name was was formed, you know, kind of some from the concept of martial arts, but a big part of it is the fact that halfway through my career, I went back uh, and got my MBA. And after 22 months of that pain, I went and got my Six Sigma Black Belt certification, which is uh, advanced statistical business process. Um, that at the time I was running a transportation company and we were heavily integrating ISO and Six Sigma. So I got my black belt certification to kind of lead that effort within, <clears throat> within our company. And all of those uh, concepts and uh, capabilities are integrated within black belt. Perfect, perfect, okay, okay. Well, as we dive in here, <clears throat> we're gonna go over six, let's see, five, five main areas. And just before we dive in, it'll be number one, as a seller, when, when is the best time to sell? Number two, the type of seller you are, financial or strategic, as far as what type of uh, buyer you're looking for. Number three, you know, do you really need a business broker? You know, what, what are the pros and cons of, of hiring one? Number four, uh, go over valuation and deal structure. And then five, we're just going to go over that workflow of the acquisition critical elements and, and from A to B, what happens throughout the process. So yeah, let's kick it off. So, okay, you, you're, let's say you've got a brokerage or an asset-based company, you know, you're, you're a transportation company and you're, you're ready to retire. You know, it's like, all right, time to, time to sell. Um, when's the best time to sell? And probably even a better question, when's the best time to start preparing to sell? Because I'm sure it's not like flipping a switch. There, there are many times that are the proper times to sell it. It really just varies by the seller, of course, as you mentioned, uh, age can certainly be a, a motivating factor for a seller, but there are many other times that I kind of refer to business growth as, um, you know, there are different stages of business growth. I call those the thermoclines of, of growth. And as you kind of move up the pyramid in, in business size from small to large, it gets, tougher and tougher to make those transitions between those different thermoclines or those thermoclines of growth. You have investments that you have to make in technology and, and uh, you know, more assets, more people, uh, recruiting, uh, more drivers, all, all kinds of different things. And then there are other motivating factors. Uh, say, for example, in today's world, you know, market conditions. When, 
many sellers say we don't, it's an age-old question of when's, when's the right time to sell. I argue that now, last year and this year may be absolutely the most perfect times to sell a business because the transportation market is generally performing so well. Uh, most businesses are, are up and margins are up and everything's looking very good in most transportation companies. Um, so a lot of sellers are saying this is the right time to sell. We all know that in the transportation market that there's ups and downs, just like the financial market. And we all know that from experience that uh, the transportation market will correct itself. Eventually the overall structure of the, the conditions, the supply chain uh, will correct itself. And um, so that's something to consider. The other thing too is all through last year, and many sellers were, were really pushing hard to sell by the end of last year because there's so much discussion on tax structure changing in the, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, that hasn't happened yet, but certain, uh, fairly certain at some point in time that the tax structure is going to change. We'll see whether it happens now in 2022, but with the uh, just the overall debt, di different things, uh, different parties in, in control, uh, tax structures are, are bound to change. But one of the scary things about the tax structure is that there has been a lot of discussion on changing the capital gains tax structure rate, um, which is right. important because when you do an acquisition, typically most of the funds received from an acquisition from a sale of a company are taxed at a capital gains rate. And there has been discussion of greatly increasing uh, capital gains tax rates for amounts over a million dollars. So all uh, key, in, key ingredients in deciding whether it's the right time to sell your company. Okay, okay. Yeah, I know taxes, capital gains are definitely, uh, you know, something you consider as you're going through that process. If, if you look at the type of buyer you are, you know, on one hand, you could be a financial buyer or a financial seller, just wanting wanting the highest price or a strategic. You, When you sell, you want your employees to be taken care of. You want uh, hopefully your, your company to grow when you're gone. And maybe you get a, you know, some, like there's a kicker, a little bit of, of, of the upside so you can benefit from extreme growth. Kind of touch on that if you could, Mike, if you're a strategic seller. Yes, um, I've worked with a lot of different entities and sellers and buyers through the years that financial and strategic. So I kind of se segregate them. Typically, most of your private equity uh, venture capital firms are, are more in the financial category where it's kind of a pure financial play. So if you're, if, if you're a seller that we're really, you're kind of saying, you know, really actually all I want is the most money I can get for my company and not much else matters, then there are literally hundreds of, uh, of private equity firms out there that uh, will meet those needs. You know, I always refer to the financial side of, of um, acquisitions. That's kind of the, the, the gray side of, of things. You know, when, when the word, the word acquisition can have kind of a dirty word in the market because some of the, some of the deals that come out uh, that have that have gone wrong, uh, most of them on the, are on the pure financial side. 
and those are the uh, the businesses that we represent only. Um, those include the it, it's strategic strategic side is really kind of as a seller you're looking for best value. You realize that a, a good cultural match between uh, a seller and a buyer is critical for long-term success of, of that acquisition. Uh, skill set value um, for both buyer and seller are worth something in, in the deal. Geographic presence, the fact that uh, leadership teams uh, are wanted to remain within a business for a long term if they desire. So there are a lot of different categories within the strategic that mm -hmm. make up that category. Okay. Okay. And then as far as, you know, when you look at just the pure question of, you know, do I need a business broker or maybe my attorney or a lawyer can help me? Uh, when do you recommend hiring a business broker? Like how big do you need to be? Or maybe that's the wrong question, but I think we, you understand what I'm getting at. Like when, when do you need to use a business broker and when don't you? There are a lot of sellers in the market that uh, feel that they may not need a, a business broker because they have an attorney. I'm a business broker, but I, I kind of argue against that, um, that, that kind of thought process because attorneys, what I've seen in the past, attorneys are very good at protecting their clients from a legal perspective, but most attorneys have not actually run transportation companies so that makes, makes a significant difference because there's a difference between looking at a legal document from a legal perspective, but then uh, within the acquisition world, there, there are commercial aspects of a legal document that, that really need to be included to truly protect a, a seller with, within that document. So knowing the types of protections and the fact that if, if particular commercial clauses aren't included in a legal document, the types of things that a, that a buyer could potentially do absent those commercial clauses. You know, and, and so really, you know, you want someone who is not only a business broker, but a transportation business broker, because a lot of business brokers out there, they do all businesses, right? So if you get one that focuses on transportation, you know, just obviously makes sense. If you are a transportation company, they're going to understand your business better. They're going to protect you better, but they're also going to make sure everyone wins, right? Because if it's not a win-win, it's probably not going to work out that well. So it has to be a win-win for everyone, the buyer and the seller. And, you know, a, a attorney will know the law, but he won't uh, know all of the critical aspects of just comes with, you know, decades of experience being in the industry. So that, that makes sense. You're dead on. And I would, I would add that uh, we, we represent sellers in the, in the market, but we have uh, a large database of what we call well-vetted buyers. But I always tell our sellers that you know, about midway through the, through the process, we always uh, exclusively represent our sellers um, and working for them and in their best interest. But really, when you think about it, and to your point, you get deep into the process and you really need a broker that's going to kind of run down the middle of the road with the best interests of the seller and the buyer and putting together, constructing the deal and an acquisition and a structure that's, um, that's going to work for both sides. Because if, 
it doesn't do any any side any particular good to pull something over or negotiate a particular clause that's not going to work very well for the other uh, because then after you close you, you just end up fighting it forever so you you, re you really need that um, yeah. kind of middle of the road uh, process as you get into absolutely and now we kind of jump into the, the meat and potatoes, you know, the, the valuation, the deal structures of a of a deal. You know, there's, you know, I assume there's certain if you're at a, you know, two to 10 million, you know, you're at this EBITDA multiple. If you're at 10 to 20 or 20 to 50 or 50 to 100 million, you know, your EBITDA multiples, you know, have different ranges. Uh, briefly, we don't have time to dive into each one, but uh, kind of go over, you know, of course, it's different between pure brokerage or maybe you're selling a brokerage and an asset-based company. So it's you know, like 50-50 or, or purely assets. Uh, as best in a summary, without getting too in-depth, how would you explain how to calculate a fair multiple? And, and also, I guess, let's go over valuation first, and then we'll go into deal structures. Sure. For an asset-based trucking company, generally multiples are lower in their structure, and those multiples are figured in different ways. They can be, um, for an asset-based trucking company, it can be figured off, off of a multiple of uh, earnings before interest and taxes with uh, also fair market value uh, of the assets themselves or it could be based on a multiple of EBITDA, uh, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization, depending on how many assets reside on, on the balance sheet. So much detail that kind of enters in here on, on how that's done, because there are, you could have assets that you own with employee drivers, you could have your leased equipment that, that you're putting your own drivers in, or you could have leased equipment with maintenance agreements that, that you have outside contractors running. Uh, you could have mostly owner operators moving, moving uh, your trailers and, and, and your freight. Um, so there could, there's all kinds of variations that will have an impact on, on how, this, how it's calculated and what the multiple is. Non-asset brokerage operations usually have higher multiples, but of course, there's no assets in, in the valuation that, that, that figure in. And in general, the size of the organization is, is going to drive the multiple. You can, you can literally sell a, you know, an extremely small business um, up, up to a, you know, a multi-billion dollar business. So when you get into the multiples, then there are so many different variations that have an impact on, on the multiple and the, and, and the structure. Um, you, have, you have to really get in and take a look at, at um, concentrations of, of, of customers. If uh, say 80% of, of your overall business is with one customer, there's a lot more risk in that. Uh, concentrations of, of uh, Carriers, the number of carriers used, concentration of uh, the types of commodities that are hauled, um, particularly in, in today's world. If, if you're hauling basically all uh, construction commodities, there's higher risk for buyer 
in that, knowing that when there's an economic downturn, that your business is probably going to see a downturn. Whereas if, if your business is hauling commodities, uh, food stuff and drugs and, and different types of things that are typically not uh, greatly affected by downturns in the economy or COVID or you know, different other things that happen, all those things uh, come into play on, on determining a, a, a good, strong multiple for a, for a seller. In today's world, you really can't sit here and say, well, if you have a uh, $1 million EBITDA company, you're a non-asset company, then you should get this multiple. It, it, it really right. doesn't work, work that way. And, and if you have somebody telling you, a business broker or whatever, uh, you know, you're, you're definitely worth this without getting into all those analytics, <clears throat> then you're probably getting the pie in the, in the sky story from that person or that broker. You, you know, you bring up several things and, and that makes so, so much sense because we're in such a dynamic uh, business atmosphere right now. You know, of course, like the, 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 the sellers, diversity of customers, the number of customers, the type of freight, uh, why they're selling and how, like the amount of money in the economy. So if there's a lot of buyers or if there's not a lot of buyers, if it's an up market, a down market, um, if there's a relationship with the buyer and the seller or one of them, you know, how much does that account for? So even if you're buying a house, you know, it's a, it's whatever, whatever the, the buyer is willing to pay and whatever the, the seller is willing to sell it at. With this, you look at the next topic is structures, right? And, and structures are such a hot topic because as a seller, right, do you take a, an all-cash buyer up front and then you get all your money and you don't have to, uh, you know, worry about the performance of the business? Um, I don't know how frequent that is as, as uh you buy a business, it's completely different than buying a house. So I would assume, and of course, I'm, I'm leaning on your guidance, many buyers, even if they can pay all cash, they don't want to, right? They want to, you know, pay 56%, 70% upfront, and then have some sort of earnout period to number one, protect themselves, because specifically in the brokerage space, you know, it's, it's so sensitive with customers that that transition is extremely important for you know six to twelve months, or if not longer, you know, earn out of three years is not is not uh, rare. So, a let's let's review what a earnout is. Uh, B what's typical as far as time frame, and what you see as far as typical structures. Uh, if there is, if there is a typical structure, I mean, it might all be on a case by case basis uh, for brokerage and, and asset based. Sure. And if, if I may add on, on the valuation uh, point, yeah. two other points. On the evaluation, that's, that's why it's so critical to be, to be looking at multiple different buyers, not just one, because each buyer, the things that you do, how you do it, the modes, the commodities, all the different things that, that you have is going to have different value to different buyers. So it's an age-old mistake to grow your business for years and years, get to the point of selling it, and then only consider one buyer. Uh, because there may be another buyer down the road that values what you do a, a lot, a lot more. 
the other typical um, pitfall you don't want to fall into is you you see these announcements in the market or you have a I, I have a seller now that's got a buddy that uh, when we first started talking he said well my friend he's got a similar type of business and and he got a he got an eight multiple of, of EBITDA and I asked him okay so what was the structure behind that um, and he didn't know you see a lot of announcements that you know so and so sold for uh, 12 times earnings and so the devil's in the detail on that stuff I, you know I can get any seller a 20 multiple but the structure is going to have is guaranteed you're not going to get all your money so a lot of those pitfalls you can fall into but to your points on on earnout you're exactly right if if you sell your company for 100% cash and you get all of it up front you're you're probably selling it at a discount um, because the buyer is going to assume a fair amount of risk. As you pointed out, particularly with uh, a non-asset brokerage, the, the buyers, the assets the buyers buying are the employees and the, and the customers. Right, so, right. so the, the buyer is gonna to wanna to make certain that on day two, the employees and the customers show up. <laughs> Otherwise they're standing <laughs> out front with a set of keys and, and that's, all, that's all they have. So these deals typically, have uh, some form of, of earnout in them, but um, particularly over the last year, two years, earnouts have have really evolved. Where the earnout time period has come down significantly, <clears throat> where it used to not be uncommon for three, four years, and and now I see on an average um, twenty four months. Sometimes they'll be three years. Sometimes they'll be eighteen months. Very important within those earnouts. When you have earnouts, earnout is not particularly a bad thing if you have it properly structured and you have proper protections. In that, an earnout earnout should should have a, a basement to it. So an earnout is going to say, "Okay, we're buying your business based on this valuation. So we want to see that 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 valuation or those earnings continue forward." But you can have a basement on an earnout that says, "Well, even if you fall short of that baseline, you'll still get paid. You don't necessarily lose all of your earnout payment for that year. And we're typically able to negotiate in uh, recovery. So if maybe you miss a baseline in the first year, you can make it up in the in the second year. And then many of the earnout structures now where they you didn't so much see it in the past, Many of them have uh, upside for growth within the earnouts. I, I actually recent I actually uh, had a customer where we we did a deal at six point two five times uh, EBITDA at the wow. time, and and when by the time that uh, seller completed their earnout period, they actually were paid close to eight times earnings uh, based on the structure of the earnout. Wow. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if you have kickers and upside, you know, that's, that's always nice because everyone wins, right? If you, if you have a longer earnout period, it's, it's nice for the, the buyer, obviously the seller has to agree. And just like in real estate, you can buy a, a house for all cash, but it's probably not going to be the best price. It's probably going to be a lower price because you can close quicker. You can, you know, there's no inspection, same thing with buying a business. 
so it's a trade-off between risk and reward, like like most things. Oh, if I could, I'll give you an example of the of commercial clause. You talk about earnout and how important that is. Well, you you want to make certain that in that earnout you have protection, specific protections on how you can manage your business towards getting your earnout. Um, without a proper commercial clause, you could potentially have a buyer that you you close and then you're your uh, first P&L that you get uh, af after closing has uh, all kinds of corporate overhead al allocations applied to it because you didn't have the proper protections. And then all of a sudden you've got an earnout, so you got to hit that number, plus you got to make up their corporate overhead allocations. So that's just an example of an earnout and, and taking it back to um, commercial clauses and all the different types of things that, that you need protection on it. And, you need somebody that with all that specific knowledge to make certain you get all those things. Definitely, definitely. Uh, as we switch gears to reviewing the acquisition critical elements, kind of going over the A to Z chronological timeframe, uh, it all starts with finding a buyer. And, you know, part of me says, well, a shotgun approach would be great. Like tell as many buyers as possible that were for sale but then a rifle would probably be more efficient uh, or, or maybe do a shotgun approach at first and then you just narrow down based on uh, who qualifies, you know, on what you're looking for. So is there a, is there a recommended approach? Well, we certainly uh, recommend a, a, a rifle approach. The, one of the real pitfalls of, of a shotgun approach in that you don't, you don't want a broker or somebody spraying it, uh, your information out, out to the market is most sellers are information, but um, they're pretty sensitive about their employees. And if, if a general marketing brief gets sprayed out to the market, um, there are a lot of times that people can figure out who the seller is. Um, based on just general information of, of the seller and general geographic location mm -hmm. and different things. <clears throat> and you're, in the early stages, you're, you're trying to determine whether you want to sell your company, but you're trying to determine whether you will. And you certainly don't want, early on, you probably don't want to be telling all of, all of your employees that you're going to sell the business. Uh, that gives them a real uh, un, uneasy feeling because they don't know who you're gonna to sell to. And they instantly start thinking about them and what's gonna happen. And with all the turnover of employees in the market nowadays, you, you definitely don't need that. So what you need is introductions to, to multiple buyers, but mul those multiple buyers that, are, that have great reputations in the market, we're treating businesses fairly that, that um, they're known for their ethics and their integrity and how they treat their own employees and all those types, types of things. And it's wasted time if, if, if you're spending a bunch of time talking to a prospective buyer that is not really a good fit between your two organizations. So one of the advantages of, of having a broker that operates that way is that broker is going to filter all of that in, a, in advance and only introduce you to well-vetted 
buyers that are specifically looking for your type of business with your type of uh, critical elements uh, that are contained within your business. Very good, very good. So we get the, the buyer pool uh, appropriate. And the next step is you know receiving financials essentially, or at least the business broker will collect these financials, do a proper, like a create a pro forma and just go over uh, realistic, realistic uh, financials to expect. Like we were talking offline before we recorded that, you know, if we have a company that there's two owners and they're going to retire and their salaries are, are X, well, you, you remove X, which obviously increases the profit of the business, but then you have to insert some sort of general manager or maybe even two people because the two owners are now not working in the business. So, you know, basically adjusting the numbers so a potential buyer can realistically evaluate um, accurate numbers of what to expect when they buy the business. So maybe touch on how that preparation happens briefly, and we'll go on to the next uh, step. Yes, your, your, your financial data should be properly uh, prepared. When, so most deals are, are valuations are based off of the trailing 12 month um, fi financial performance. As I talked about earlier, either EBITDA or, or EBIT, and there there can be adjustments to uh, to that bottom line for uh, non-recurring uh, expenses, uh, anomalies that occur in anomalies of expenses that occur during the trailing twelve months. You know, if if you've got some personal expenses, you're run, maybe you're running a country club through your business, or um, you know, different different types of things that that won't move forward after a sale. Those things can be written out. Uh, you have to be very careful about, um, you don't typically adjust out a, a leader's salary because unless, unless that particular leader um, is not doing anything or an employee uh, is not doing anything in the business. So sometimes you'll have a business where you've got a, uh, an owner that maybe has the, the spouse is paid a salary, but the spouse actually doesn't work in the business. That's a good example of, of a non-recurring expense that can be excluded. But when you, when you get into excluding salaries or diff different types of things, you have to take a look at what's the role of that salary that's being removed. And you, you just can't, in, in that case, you typically just can't deduct it all because sure. the work still has to be done. So if another person has to be hired to do it, um, those are all things that kind of go into the decision on whether you can make that type of adjustment. Absolutely. And, and also, you know, sometimes people are working for free, but they're doing a full-time job because they're a spouse of the owner, right? So you have to really know, okay, how, realistically, how many hours a week is each person working? And that's, of course, if it's a smaller company, if it's a bigger company, then it's, you know, you just need to know how many employees uh, and, and team members. As, as we move on, so let's say we, so, so the business broker has created the financials, the, you know, the market uh, deck is, is ready and you send it out to the, the, the buyers and you get some responses, some interested responses, responses. We then go into maybe some phone calls, in-person interviews, kind of go over that, that process as it goes all the way down to closing. Yes, so we'll, we'll match the buyers up and then we'll send a marketing brief out to those buyers and then we'll get responses back at levels, levels of interest. 
one of the steps that we always have, which is a lot of, it's an additional step to what many other steps are, but we always have introductory uh, video calls now. When the, oh, nice. when the buyer expresses interest with a seller, we have an introductory video call. So buyer and seller can, can get a feel for each other, see each other, get a feel for each other, um, both as people and the cultures, the cultures in their businesses that they're driving, uh, get a feel for each other personally, because there, there's, a, there's a whole subjective side of acquisitions to make them work properly, as we talked about earlier. It's not just pure financial, typically. Um, <clears throat> so we do that. And then if both buyer and seller like each other and want to take the next step forward, then they'll sign a specific NDA between the buyer and the seller. <clears throat> At that point in time, uh, a lot more specific data can be released to that, to that buyer. Hopefully uh, you have somebody that really consolidates it and makes it easier for the, for the buyer to uh, interpret to save time. From there, if uh, you get into a lot of uh, Q&A and everything and, and if uh, the interest levels uh, persist, then you'll, you'll typically have face-to-face -face meetings with the buyer and the seller uh, at the seller's location. You know, a lot of times in, incognito mm -hmm. because the seller's employees still still don't know um, of this, and and then from there <clears throat> you get into uh, negotiation of the valuation and the deal structure, and from that a letter of intent is is formed. Letter of intents uh, hold all the key elements of what will later on. Um, exist within uh, legal document purchase agreements. It's typically a couple pages long where a purchase agreement may be 70, 80 pages long, but a letter of intent, LOI, or sometimes called IOI, has all the key ingredients. And it's an outline for a purchase agreement. So you go through all those negotiations on the valuation and the structure of the company. And uh, once a letter of intent is signed, then you move into a due diligence process, which typically takes a good 90 days. Sometimes it'll take 120 days, sometimes a little less than 90, on average 90 days. And that's where they really get in, the buyer really gets in, into the detail of, of, the, uh, of the seller. They'll get into quality of earnings studies where they're basically following the money throughout the, uh, from pickup to uh, deposit in a, in a bank and, and uh, tax documents and all kinds of different things, legal, legal aspects of, of a company, legal checks, uh, background checks, all kinds of different things that are included in the due diligence process. You know, Mike, you know, based on your experience, what have you seen happen in, you know, just in your experience of, of mergers and acquisitions that have just like just destroyed a deal? Like they, the seller didn't, you know, you know, tell the buyer about this or the buyer wasn't qualified, like, because the due diligence period is that's really when you find out is everything true of what's represented, right? So what what have you seen in a, in a bad way? And then what have you, maybe some best practices that you'd recommend in a good way, in a good light? Really critical for a, for a seller to be very open about their business and, and the past certainly don't want to hide anything as far as um, uh, things that have occurred in the past uh, uh, from a legal perspective, 
you know, those types of things will be discovered in, in due diligence. So if there are issues or concerns from the past, they should be brought up right up front, particularly with a, with a business broker. And that broker can then tell you how, how that should be handled at what, at what stage um, that information should be fair, shared. But you bring up a very a good point where it's critical up front to, to have all the key elements of due diligence provided to a buyer up front when you guys decide to kind of go down the same road together when you're moving towards a evaluation that when you're moving towards a, a letter letter of intent mm -hmm. i i in the in my and that's why we built our proprietary technology that kind of reverse engineers the acquisition process and, and automates it so from my 25 years of of acquisitions and all i've done and all i've seen and heard um it, so our software provides literally all of the um, data that a buyer will potentially will want to look at and potentially will have concerns over concentrations of revenue and things we kind of touched on earlier. There's there's a hundred, you know, there's hundreds of different different things. But if you can provide all of that information, and of course, early on it's gonna be generic, customer one, two, three, four, sales one, two, three, four, carrier names are left out. It's generic at first, but if you can bring up all of those types of things and commodities and concentrations of sales and customers and uh, shipper counts and all, all kinds of different things, if, if the more that can be covered up front gives you a significant improvement in the odds of closing and, and, and that your due diligence process won't end up in a disaster or your buyer isn't going to discover something and then want to come back and retrade the deal. And what I mean by that is, well, hey, we, you know, we, we, we didn't know that yeah, actually your, your revenue concentration was good, but your gross profit concentration of your number one and your number three customers are, it, it's those two customers alone are, are generating 80% of the of the gross profit. We, you know, we didn't we didn't know that up front. So now we we need to change the, the valuation. So um, the more information that be provided up front, the better. And and if that's done and there really aren't any secrets or or anything, the odds of closing are extremely high. Okay. Okay. So like anything, just be upfront and you can, you know, have a, a clearer path to success in closing. Um, with, with mergers and acquisition, is there, is there a good time to start acquiring companies? Like in your opinion, is there, you know, you need to be X years old as a company. You need to be X size as a company. What are your thoughts on that? You can literally be, be any any size. It's here's the general rule, and and of course most of this structure, this uh, conversation has been geared around uh, strategic uh, buyers and sellers. So, it, the general rule is uh, a a seller wants to sell 
because they want to be part of a, of a larger organization. They don't want to deal with the thermoclines of growth or they, they want to get in with a, a buyer and leverage uh, all the aspects of that larger buyer, maybe proprietary technology, different skill sets, um, mode value, uh, uh, access to other carriers, you know, tons of, tons of different things. So the general rule uh, is that a seller is going to want to uh, sell to a, a, a larger buyer that has uh, more skill sets, more value in the market than the seller does. So they can in turn leverage those types of things and, 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 and really um, propel growth into the future. Makes sense. Makes sense. No, that, that, you know, just partnering out with a, with a bigger brother, so to speak, makes sense as you uh, take advantage of their strengths and uh, maybe, you know, the deal is structured. So you as a seller can benefit if the company does uh, better than expected. So obviously if you're, if you're a buyer that does $10 million of, of annual revenue, then a, a $20 million annual revenue company is probably not going to want to sell to you. So that, that alone gives you some parameters on, you know, if you're, if you're a 5 million annual, million annual revenue company, then you're, you're probably not going to buy a 10 million. You're probably looking at somebody that's one or 2 million. Sure. 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 Okay. That makes sense. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Um, if, if someone's interested, you know, let's say they're thinking about selling, whether they're asset based or, or not, um, or they're just maybe in the educational phase and just want to talk to somebody or read some, you know, some content. Is there a way to, you know, connect with you or, you know, your websites, you know, how, how does that work? Yes, very easy. First of all, our, our website has a host of visuals and letters of recommendation and all kinds of different things on it. Just go to www.blackbelttc.com. So black belt, as it, as it sounds, as it's spelled. And then the, the, the letters TC, Tom Charlie, blackbelttc.com. Or you can email me at mike at blackbelttc.com. Perfect, perfect. So listeners, there you go. It's never too late to get educated. I mean, you might not be ready to sell for three years, but you know, it's just good to, and that actually might be a good thing, right? Because you can put the systems in place. Maybe, maybe you've got a good team, but you don't have the infrastructure just so because you know, a, a seller wants to buy a business. They don't want to buy it or a buyer wants to buy a business, right? Not a, another a job, right? So getting those systems in place, those policies, the automation. Uh, so Mike, thank you again for being on and uh, yeah, best of luck in 2022. Thank you, Andy. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks. Alrighty, thank you for listening to today's Carrier Conversation podcast brought to you by Bar Transportation. Now, if you are a successful driver, dispatcher, or owner of a trucking company, and you believe you have some secret sauce to share and enjoy helping others grow, then look no further. Simply go to bartrans.com, click on Carriers, and you'll find the Carrier Podcast. Now, as you know, topics range the whole spectrum from maintenance to fuel to driver recruiting to something I'm not thinking of. 
just absolutely tons to talk about and we'll never run out of topics. Lastly, if you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, tweet, reshare it with everyone you know. Tell other drivers at Truck Stops about it. Spread the word. As you know, collectively, we can learn a lot together, right? Knowledge is power. That's all for now. Keep those wheels turning, stay safe, and remember, preparation plus opportunity equals success.